This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. We're back with another Paddock Pass podcast episode. Thanks to the good people at Fly Racing. Check out flyracing.com for all the street apparel and protection you'll need. And if you're an off-roader as well, then you can fill your boots. We're also coming to you thanks to Rental Street. We'll have our first Rental Street session next week, where we'll be talking exclusively to Cameron Bobie about setup in Moto2 and what the future might hold for the American. My name is Adam Wheeler. Feel free to check out the webzine on trackoffroad.com for plenty of MotoGP, MXGP, Supercross and motorcycling content. And I'm joined again by the Jedi Master of MotoGP Insight, a man who has no issue whatsoever waving his lightsaber around, David Emmett. We also have a man who has only partially dabbled with the dark side but can voice any movie villain with relish, our MotoGP expert, Mr. Neil Morrison. Hi, guys. Hello, Adam. Uh, Webzine reminds me of it being like 1994 and reading stuff about uh, Nirvana um, on the dark corners of the internet. Well, never let us be accused of being out of date, Dave. Uh, we always try to stay up to date with the latest gossip and news and interviews. <laughs> Webzine is the new uh, is the new magazine's uh, uh, ad. It's um, uh, everything is going retro. I know. I would like to try and do a printed version at some point this year. Uh, even if it's just a collection of some of the stories I've already seen. I think it's something that's always good to have in the hands. Neil, um, you know, Sunday last weekend, uh, for about ten minutes, you must have been in, in pure state a state of pure elation, but it didn't quite work out for Liverpool Football Club. But then I think we're going to have a pretty good, potentially a very good weekend in Mugello. Yeah, I wouldn't even say there was 10 minutes of elation because there was no point on Sunday when Liverpool were actually ahead in the league. They were either uh, deadlocked in a pretty tight game of their own or they were uh, looking on forlornly at the uh, the other game, which was uh, the kind of the title decider, which meant that, uh, yeah, when that result swung against them, then that basically they, they couldn't win the, uh, the league. So... Yeah, I have to apologise for anyone I encountered uh, on Sunday evening and Monday because I was a pretty grumpy, uh, miserable old sod. But yes, chance to atone this weekend. And uh, we're going to the paddock, of course, which is uh, absolutely filled with uh, Real Madrid fans. So uh, extra, <laughs> extra tension. It's all in the line. A, 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 a quick question for my football experts here. Um, how many games are there uh, do, in, a, in a championship? So how many, how many games did um, Liverpool play this year? 38 in the championship. 38. In the league. Because I, I was thinking about it, and that is basically the equivalent. 38 games, so that's 38 days of action, which is the equivalent of uh, 36, what, 12, just under 13 race weekends. Um, so yeah, it it was something while you were talking about the FA Cup last weekend. I was thinking, oh, how many? I wonder how how many games they actually play. It doesn't seem to be a huge amount. You know, but when you put it into that perspective, because you know they're traveling there in the morning and then and then traveling back in the, uh, in the evening. So there's more than enough, Dave. And especially in the in the <laughs> Premier League, they've got enough. And if you're a fan of Liverpool Football Club, then you have oodles of cups to win but when you're a fan of queen's park rangers and you're in the championship then you just have glamorous evenings barely, like, barely see a weekend yeah like barely they, they tuesday yeah. trips to barnsley um you know no <laughs> offense to anyone from barnsley or barnsley football club who have actually done a pretty fine job over the last season or two but uh, talk- it's a lovely part of the country as well oh i've never been so there you go extra extra ignorance in my comment but um yeah of course you know the champions league final taking place 
over the Michelle weekend. Uh, we've been here before, Neil. Um, you know, the the last time Liverpool won, you had great pleasure sticking your hair, head out of my rental car window singing Beatles songs at some unearthly hour in the morning uh, on the way back to the hotel. But it also means, Dave, that you get to enjoy random Spanish journalists asking riders about which football team they prefer to win the big match. And it's completely irritating to you know, people of your ilk who have no great love for the beautiful game. No, that's right. I should probably just wander around with a uh, 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 with an FC Munich uh, T-shirt on or something just to uh, <laughs> see if it'll uh, annoy anyone. <laughs> yeah, Mugello 2019 Sunday morning. That was probably the, the only time that I've ever done commentary when I've still felt slightly drunk from the night before. Um, the one and only time. And I think I was well within my, my rights to, to have... Uh, to have been in that state but yeah i think you guys still have the photos of me lying on my workspace uh after those sessions when uh, the hangover really started to kick in i thought it's one of your finest performances neil <laughs> yeah uh, i uh, uh actually they're not anywhere near as amusing as the uh, as the pictures of you um watching the screen uh, during football because uh, with a look of sheer terror in your face uh, on your face it's it's quite it's quite amazing it's actually amazing that um uh people enjoy that sort of thing because you look absolutely aghast all of the time that's just the face i have when i'm in a public place with you div <laughs> <laughs> possibility of getting seen you know would uh, damage my reputation uh, forever fair. listen steering things back to motorcycling for a moment dave you've been particularly vocal on twitter over the last few days especially with the the round of world superbike and i hope people have managed to capture the show that you know steve uh, has produced with gordo and also charlie hiscott and, um, you know, I couldn't help but thinking amongst all the opinions and um, and the posturing, if I may say, uh, you know, there was a, a quite a wonderful picture of your BMW GS that's now looking, you know, particularly rosy. I mean, for some, that's, that's a sacrilege, but for others, it's just hopeless romanticism. Um, you know, tell us why you have a large rose painted on the tank and then some more flowers on your, your um, what's the word, panniers. Panties. Uh, a mixture of sacrilege and hopeless romanticism, I think, is the is the correct answer. Um, uh, actually, it's a bit complicated. Um, my wife's name is Rosha. That's the, the the Dutch word for rose. And then uh, I was talking to a, a fellow journalist, Hungarian journalist, Nikki Kovac, um, and I saw her phone lock screen was a rose and i thought oh, that's an amazing photograph and if i now, when i buy a new motorbike i'm going to going to get that on my uh, uh sort of printed and, and painted onto my bike so i did and that's how i ended up with it fair enough what do you reckon neil would you have flowers on your motorbike when you eventually get one uh i would have like real flowers sticking out of the side but that was kind of i would have done that before Morris, he took like a dark turn. You know, it used to be cool to carry like a bouquet of flowers around, especially in the dance floor. But uh, considering Morris's recent uh, turn of uh, of kind of events, I would uh, I would say that that's maybe not cool either. So yeah, I think I would maybe stay clear of the flowers. Well, for for a journalist called Neil Morrison, I think you know a Morrissey kind of impression would be <laughs> particularly fantastic. But um, listen, enough uh, tangents. What about Mugello this weekend? Uh, arguably, could be the first time in a number of what well, number of years, three years that we see. You know, this special circuit, this particular Grand Prix, back to something like its atmospheric best. But of course, we're going to miss the Valentino Rossi effect, um, even though you could argue that for a couple of years, we haven't really seen the best of Valentino Rossi at Mugello. Um, now I'm going to come to you first because my memory's failing. What year was it where he took pole 
Uh, and then the bike blew up. Was that 2018? 16. 16, 16. already. Well, there you go. Uh, that was a, that was probably, it was the occasion where we saw Rossi take pole position. Um, that evening, it was on the national news everywhere. It must have added another five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people straight away to the gate who were lured to the fact that Valentino might win again at Mugello. Of course, there's no chance of that happening now, but there is going to be a small ceremony on the grid on Saturday, I believe, uh, where they're going to retire the 46. Um, we'll talk about that perhaps a little bit later in the podcast. But um, what, what are our thoughts on Mugello, guys? Are we, we're all going to be there. Uh, so we'll be doing the Paddock Pass podcast note shows. So if you're listening to this and you want to hear even more insight, especially from the riders right after their debriefs and what's been happening at the track, then sign up to our Patreon because we'll be doing little broadcasts from the circuit. Uh, you know, is it an event we particularly like to go to? Is it something we always recommend people attend or is it just a complete ball ache? Because let's face it, the entry to the track means you have to dodge through hundreds, if not thousands of spectators on a Sunday morning. It's, it's quite um, perilous. Well, you don't necessarily have to dodge them. I mean, you can sort of gently nudge them out of the way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. It's it's a it's a beautiful setting. It's a it's an amazing atmosphere. Uh, the food is good. Um, it can be a bit of a, a, a ball like driving in, but even then, it's it, it's never been, or at least where we get in. Uh, where we come in from, then it's never it, it it's never been particularly horrendous, and it sort of depends on where you're staying. Is uh, 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 depends on your drive, sort of thing. So no, I mean I I love it. I think it's fantastic. There's just so much to like about it, and it's a, if you have a partner who is not keen on motorbikes, a partner or a family, then it's absolutely a, a, a top race to go to because you can get there from Florence. Uh, you can get to the racetrack reasonably easily, and uh, the, you know there is so much to see. Florence is a fantastic city. There's great food, great wine, great uh, uh, hiking. Even if you just want to go for a hiking, great cycling, great motorbike riding. Um, yeah, I am a fan. And it's and it's an amazing track. It is a proper motorbike track. It is a it is a proper you know full on motorcycle racing track it's it's it flows and it's got uh, the that that series of chicanes which really opens up sort of uh, the opportunities to overtake which we'll talk about later but um yeah it's a, it's a proper proper track yeah i agree with dave it's uh, one of the best runs of the year to go to in my opinion i would definitely have it in my probably my top 3 yes it's a bit of a bollock to get to uh, there's no cities like super handy i know florence is relatively close but it's still a bit of a, of a drive around uh, some kind of back alleys and such like um, but you know you forget all of that as soon as you get to the track um, as soon as you walk into or walk down the steps in towards where the paddock is I mean you've basically got like this whole the track is just all out in front of you and it looks wonderful and whenever you're coming in or going out I think as early as Thursday there's already a pretty of a, a deafening uh, din of um, noise of, of engines being revved from the the hillsides and and so on. So, yeah, you've definitely got this is sense of atmosphere that I think you get at some of the best tracks, uh, some of the best uh, Grand Prix that we go to. Um, the location is stunning when you're driving in and out to wherever you stay, whether it's a villa nearby or a hotel. I mean, usually the drive around the circuit to anywhere is is just spectacular. Um, yeah, you eat well eat unbelievably well at the Italian GP. And um, as Dave mentioned, it's a great, great track, which produces, I think, some of the best racing that we have in the calendar. I mean, Moto3 is always just mental. 
Um, scary. And scary, very scary, but also pretty entertaining. And we've had, I think, some of the best MotoGP races in history at uh, Mugello. Um, not just one, but, you know, you could pick five like that 2019 race, which Pedrucci won was, uh, I think, an all-time classic. Um, even a few years before that with... Uh, with um, um, Lorenzo and Marquez, you know, uh, fighting it out in the last lap. That was a great race as well. Um, there, there's been plenty of them. So, yeah, I think this is a, this is a kind of a must-visit uh, race that we have in the calendar for any MotoGP fan. As we said on the last show, Michello was the scene where Brad Binder, of course, equaled the, the top speed record, like 362.4 kilometers an hour, uh, set by Johan Zarco initially in Qatar and in La Salle. Uh, but, I think, you know, just to echo a little bit of what you were saying, Neil, I think if you go on the outside of the track, if you're lucky enough to get near the grandstand or the section of the service road where the riders are coming over that dip on the main straight and then they start braking hard for turn one, um, being able to see that up close is something pretty special. Uh, there's nothing really like it on, on the MotoGP calendar. Um, so it's, it's something I think fans, if they are going to go to this racetrack, then try to get close to that section because you can appreciate a little bit the speed, the transition from, you know, top speed to braking on the television. But when you actually track side and you can see and hear it and actually feel some of the air and the forces coming off the motorcycles when they're trying to deal with a reversal of natural physics at that speed. Um, it's quite exhilarating. Um, I'd really recommend it. And, you know, speaking of Turn 1, it is one of the prime overtaking spots for Mugello. And it's been a subject, um, Dave, you've been writing very eloquently about it on motormatters.com uh, this week. You know, how MotoGP is not, I wouldn't say, in, in a rut, but it's facing something of a polemic issue about where the development of the racing is going in terms of position swapping, overtaking, front tyre pressures, aerodynamics, it's all kind of coming together in a bit of a ball. And um, I'm pleased to say on this show, we managed to get Red Bull KTM Factory Racing uh, crew chief, uh, Miguel Oliveira's crew chief, in fact, Paul Charathan, to talk about some of those subjects. Uh, so Dave, Neil and I interviewed him a little bit earlier. So we're going to play that recording now and let Paul explain um, you know, some of the science and some of his opinions about uh, what's currently going on in the MotoGP World Championship. Paul, uh, thanks for joining us. I guess the first thing we want to ask you is, um, you know, can you just give us a summary really on the season so far? Because it started so brightly, um, but it's also been very bizarre conditions for you. Um, what's, what's kind of the feeling in, in that side of the Red Bull KTM garage? Yeah, I mean, uh, you guys have read it pretty well. Um, to be honest, after the winter testing, we were quite sure that we'd made a step, but uh, the step that we took to Doha and Mandalika was maybe a little bit more than we expected, you know. Brad had an outstanding race. Uh, Miguel was was stuck a little bit in, in Doha, and then he, once he got free air, he was going really quick also and had the unfortunate crash. And then Mandalika, at the end of the winter testing, we found some things that looked like it was okay. And then um, especially M Miguel, I would say, Mandalika was stronger than we, we all expected to be, you know, up there at the front. And then when it rained, it just even played into his hands even more. So beginning was was what we'd say was fantastic, I would guess, you know. And then um, after that, we've sort of gone a little bit in a downhill spiral, you know. It's uh, to try to understand exactly what's going on is always difficult in this sport. And, um, you know, it's it's... For sure, some of the stuff is not playing into the KTM's hands. Some of the stuff is that we're not understanding the direction we took and how to get the most out of it every weekend. You know, we've uh, now gone on to a massive aero program also where we're trying to play the field like the other guys are doing. So it's, um, 
you know, you, you come to a track and you it all works and everything's fantastic. But when it doesn't work, you've got to try and figure out what's going on. And, you know, as we know with the, with the way the time schedule is in MotoGP, when you start behind, you stay behind. You know, you need to be on form in the first practice and then you can slowly build up from there. Otherwise, if you have to find a second, if you like, you know, the magical second, then you you maybe find it for the race, but you already start so far back that you you can't make the you can't make it pay dividends in the the end result. So, I guess this is something that we're going through at the moment. It's it's frustrating for the riders. It's frustrating for us, but uh, it is the sport and it is where we are at the moment. Uh, Paul, one of the reasons why you know we wanted you on this particular show is because the theme of overtaking is is getting more prominent um, in MotoGP and how apparently difficult it seems. From your side of the pit box, is it also an issue? Is it also a concern for you? Is it or is it something that we're kind of maybe building up to be, you know, something too much? I, I mean, if if you look at the show, it's of course it's it's a it's a frustrating thing to see the guys the guys not being able to pass like they can, you know. But I mean, there's many aspects. I mean, the aspect is the the class is so stacked, you know. There is not a bad rider out there. I don't really believe there is absolutely a bad motorcycle anymore. So it, it's adding to everything, you know, and then the, the engineering has, has come, you know, to a, to a forefront where we start to understand the tyres to, to the extreme. We start to understand the aero packages. We use every little advantage we can. And then you end up in this, in this crisis, you know, where a rider feels handicapped, you know, and uh, you know the importance of qualifying. You know, if you're not on the first two, maximum three rows, then you can almost say goodbye to a, to a top five result. So this, for, for sure, for riders is frustrating. It, it makes for teams it's frustrating also. It makes the stress of getting through to Q2 even more, more um, high, you know. And uh, the, the, every time you put a soft tire in, it's all about going fast. It's all about taking maximum risk. So we're asking the riders to take much more risk than we have in the past. Every time they put the soft tire on, you know. So even to do work on a soft tire to to have the luxury to understand if it's a really race tire, you know. It's it's already you start FP4 maybe or FP3 with a used soft that you've you've done a time attack on, so you've basically abused the tyre. So then to understand, is that really a race option or not? You know, you never have the luxury of building it up from, from scratch, coming out of the box, scrubbing it in properly, heating it up properly, understanding where really the drop happens, because after qualifying attack, of course, it's dropped, you know? So it, it complicates many things, and it makes, it makes things, uh, yeah, frustrating in the box. It makes things frustrating in the sport a little bit, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, aero part for sure is, is a massive part. You know, you, you look at it now, we we measure how long it takes to go down a straight. It's not about the, the top speed anymore. It's about using the acceleration phase. So so how you look at it is that how long does it take us in seconds to go down that straight? You know, um, maybe before you had a massive top speed, but you lost on acceleration. So maybe at the end of the straight, you could catch up something. But now the days of, of that are gone, you know, because the acceleration phase is so strong. That, that, that's where you make your time up, you know, and you can even Chiquetti is not hunting for the top speed records anymore, even though they, they are still a very fast motorcycle. But you see maybe with Suzuki, for example, they haven't gone down the, the massive aero package and their, their inline four motorcycle looks very fast in a straight line. Is that reality? That's, that's another story. But if you took all the wings off everyone else, it, it would show something very, very different, I think, you know. And it's just the, the engineering and how we look at trying to get the maximum out of our out of our package. And it's something that the sport has done. You know, the, the influence on front tires is horrendous. It's it's massive. You know, I would say from 20 to now, it's 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 gone completely crazy. Maybe in the past we were the kings of of being able to use a hard front tire. Now you go to races where 
even Yamahas and Suzuki's are having to use the front tire. That's that's a hard one, you know. And and this is was never ever thought about from the manufacturer's point of view or even the tire point of view. You know, you bring uh, three front compounds, and now it looks like we all sit between the medium and the hard. And many times the hard is not hard enough anymore. So it's it's hard, you know. It's hard. It's it's hard for for everyone to get their head around. It's hard to to try to make that step forward. And but it's um, it is the sport, and we we have to keep going. Paul, this is something that I spoke to Piero Taramasa from Michelin about, and also to, to people from Bembro, and they've said uh, the the change in the last two years has been enormous, and it's changed the the, the front tire. Now, Michelin have been working on a front tire for since about two thousand eighteen and nineteen, um, but the, the the pandemic and the lack of testing has stopped that, and also the fact that the bikes have changed so much, exactly as you said. It's changed so much. It's stressing the tires so uh, so differently. Can you explain why you Michelin couldn't just bring a, a new stiffer tire to solve some of these problems? And what you would expect from a new front tire? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's this, the the front tire is the holy grail to the motorcycle world. You know, for for a rider sitting on that beast, if if he can't doesn't have the feedback from the front, then he doesn't know where to push. He doesn't know how hard he can push. So. It's it's a very peculiar peculiar thing, and unless you're really deeply involved, it, it looks so much easier on the outside than it really is, you know. And um, you know, I would say, especially coming from Bridgestone to Michelin, the one thing that Michelin didn't have that the Bridgestone did have was the feedback, you know. So Michelin uh, Bridgestone tire, sorry, had had massive feedback to the rider. So when you felt the soft the, the tire just soft, you went to the next compound and it would have been fine. With the Michelin, it's sort of you have to go through this. Um, how would we say, like a, like a black area, you know, like a dark area where you think, oh, is it there, is it not? But you have to push on it to understand that you go through this this phase and then all of a sudden the tyre is there. So this is already a, a peculiar thing with the Michelin front tyre that a lot of people don't don't think about or don't understand. It's, it's really vague on its feedback back to you. And then, you know, just to, to make a new compound that everyone can trust, you know, already – you know, it's 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 difficult because also there's there's two things. Okay, one is that the tire feels soft. The second thing is the compound can it actually get warm enough to actually grip. So we have uh, instance on a racetrack where you feel soft with the the medium front tire, for example, but it's only 25, 30 degrees. But you know the compound that sits on the next tire will not actually generate the grip that you need until it's 30, 35 degrees. You know, so this is always a always a, a gambling type of thing that you have to do. And, you know, based on track layout, maybe there's not enough left-hand side. So the left hand will always stay cold. Maybe there's a long straight leading from uh, two rights and then the next corner is a left. Then, of course, the left-hand side is too cold or vice versa. So it, it's, it's, a really, it's a really tricky, tricky thing to, to get right. And it's a, it's a lot of rider confidence. Can he, you know, the more the rider pushes, the, the course he's going to get it to work easier. But if the rider is a little bit nervous or a little bit vague on the front, then he'll never get it up and he'll never make it work, you know. Then, of course, you go into the race and we see in the race you can maybe gain 15, 20 degrees. You can gain 0.2 of pressure, if not 0.3. So these things also add to, to the, the equation. But, of course, if you haven't tested it or, you, or the rider still doesn't know that feeling, it's a, it's a really difficult thing to – as a technician, for example, you would say, okay, go for it. It's going to be fine. But, shit, I don't sit on that bike, you know. I don't – I don't, you know. And this is the – this is the aspect where if they are in handcuffs, they just will not make the lap time. They will not push it and they will not go forward, you know? So it's, it's not something that you can just say, okay, let's just bring one harder compound and go for it. It's much more complicated than that. You know, generally also riders, you, you know, we, I read somewhere that you guys were talking about or in your article, David, 
you know, about the testing phase with the front tyre, you know. Man, you don't believe how painful this is. Nobody wants to put a front tyre on that's new first. You go to eight days of testing, you know, you have uh, everything that the factory's bought, and then you have a couple of test tyres from Michelin. And trust me, they are last on the list of the things that you attack in that weekend. So Michelin probably have to rely more on the satellite guys to get that first input because every factory rider is too busy with other things. So the delay process of bringing a front is is massive. It's it's double, if not three times, I would say, than, than a rear front. You know, a rear goes out, the rider, if the rider crashes on the rear, he has it in his hand, you know. If he loses a rear on entry, if he loses the rear on exit, it's still in his hand a little bit. He's got the throttle. But if you lose the front, you, you've got nothing, you know. So the riders are really, really reluctant to go there. We need a new front tyre, this is absolutely sure. But how how the hell Michelin's meant to do that with the, the way that we have with the test days we have with guaranteeing that it works in different different temperatures, different track conditions, every asphalt is different, every bike is different. You know, it's it's wah. And, and you, you're talking about bringing maybe a new profile or new that, then you have to make it in all the different compounds. So it's, it's a massive task, you know, and it's something that uh, I don't envy and uh, I have no idea how we can help them unless there's, there's a specific testing pro- protocol put in place that, that we can do it and bring it forward, you know. Otherwise, those poor guys were in handcuffs just like we are. Well, just um, talking about this, uh, the difficulty we've seen with overtaking this year, and um, we were talking to Andre Davizioso in Le Mans, and he was saying one of the, the reasons he sees is that basically everyone now in MotoGP locks the front tyre whenever they're in heavy braking zones. Mm-hmm. And it seems that it's just, you know, you can't brake later than someone that's already extremely late on the brakes locking the front tyre going into a turn. I was just wondering, you know, in the last couple of years, how have you seen riding styles changed um, or how have you seen like, like braking techniques kind of changed? Has there been a big evolution in that respect? I mean, I think where we were probably in 20, we were the strongest brakers, you know. KTM was renowned to be able to stop the bike in a, in a very good way. And uh, in many, many situations that probably saved us. So I would say that if anything, others have caught us up. We haven't really changed so much, but uh, I would say other manufacturers realize that and, and realize that to compete in, if we start in front, they need to be able to pass us. So everyone emphasized on how do you stop the motorcycle, you know? So everyone is taking that breaking, that breaking point and that breaking distance to the, to the maximum. So now it's, uh, now it's everyone's, as you said, breaking on that point. Everyone's trying to stop that bike in a shorter distance to give the guys that little bit more room to set up the exit of the corner. So it, I don't, I don't think it's that, I mean, we have changed the way, but I think it's everyone, the riders understanding that's where they need to work on and the bikes and the manufacturers understanding that's where they need to work on. And now we've just taken it to a limit where we, we can't get anymore, you know. I mean, the thing with the front locking, I think it's also, of course, you say you double your downforce on the front. The only way you can get that front tire to survive at all is to make the front longer. Then you use the downforce to keep the front wheel on the ground. You use a longer bike geometry to make the wheelie phase even even better. But then on braking, you don't necessarily get the weight on top of the front tyre. And this is something that a Michelin tyre absolutely needs. If you push this tyre from behind a little bit, it will generally just lock. And then you'll go straight. If you can get the weight on top of it and you push that tyre into the ground, it's the most better way. But the problem with the aero thing, if you do that only for brakes, you suffer everywhere else because the front is just to overload it everywhere else. So it, it's, a, again, it's a nasty fine line, you know. And uh, maybe Quatanara on the Yamaha, because he's so, especially his torso is so much taller, maybe he's been able to find a way that he can generate 
This leverage he gets on the front of the Yamaha, I mean, he breaks on a Yamaha like nobody has ever done before. This is also very clear. And um, maybe it's just his human size. You know, it's like the, it's like the, uh, oh, I can't even pronounce his last name, the, the, the World Superbike, you know, the, the, Top you know, he, Top yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Excuse me if he ever listened. Um, but but you know he's such a big man, and he his braking ability is fantastic. And and you know this leverage you have on your human body can can help you a lot in these points. You know you can put your weight back, you can put your weight forward so much easier with this leverage. So maybe he's the one who's found the way on the Yamaha to to really do something that the other boys cannot. And um, but again, it's 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 skill, and it's uh, yeah, he has his body size. We can't change that. What's what's your feeling about innovation, Paul? I mean, would you like to see the bikes not dumbed down? But would you like to see some of the stuff stripped off that's, you know, contributing to the current effect that we see in the sport? I mean, it, it's it's a tough one. You know, I'm, I'm, in the end, I, I love I love to make things better also, you know. So to, to put handcuffs on it all is not good, you know. But one thing that's very certain is rider safety. This is a massive thing that we have to think about. And we, we want to go racing. We don't want a, a procession. So... If things go to a point that everyone gets so good at it that we we tend to to just lock the sport out, then we have to look at different ways, you know. And I think that we can develop other ways of doing things in a better way instead of now, for example, the whole emphasis on the aero, you know, or the ride height devices. But if you didn't have that, where would you put your money? Where would you develop your motorcycle again? You know, it's become even more important than chassis stiffness or or chassis development or swing art. You know, the old school stuff that we worried about or we did, we don't worry about it anymore. We do this side of stuff, you know, and then you're relying on people who are new to motorsport or new to motorcycles who have big characters and have big ideas, but they don't still understand the full, the full idea of what a motorcycle is, you know, and, and the input that a motorcycle has with a human being sitting on top of it you know, 70, 80 kilos moving around. It's, it's a, it's a nasty dynamic, you know, and, and it's something that cars or, or aero based uh, sports, if you like, or, or aero based engineering has never really had to analyze or worry about any before because everyone is pretty much stuck. You have the downforce levels and, and that's, that's what it is. But uh, motorcycles is a nasty compromise, you know? So it, it, it leads to, I think, uh, I think we get the maximum out of it earlier and then we get the downside much earlier. You know, like you said about the before about the tires overheating, you know, like in 2020, you just tell the rider to pull out of the slipstream and cool the tire down. And he did that a couple of straights and everything was fine. But now if you pull out of the slipstream, you just get the wake and the whole bike starts shaking. So and plus you lose so much advantage now because you have this extra downforce. So you have this extra drag. So you lose top speed like you don't believe. So to even even think about competing or even think about staying with the guy and, and maybe attack him in the straight, you have to tuck in as much as you can behind him. And as soon as he breaks, you pull out. If you pull out any sooner than that, you, you're in the wake of, of, and it's a horrible experience. So as I said before, one thing leads to the other, you know, and we've just made this vicious circle, I think. But, but again, it's uh, it's where we are, you know, we've, we've done it ourselves. <laughs> if you like, uh, the rules are there and we've taken it to a maximum, but uh, how do we fix it is a, is a bigger question. Oh, I think we've got time for one more question because I know you've got to get yep. the flight to Michello. Um, I don't know if no Dave or Neil had something they wanted to ask. Um, just a, a question, Paul. We heard um, at uh, Le Mans a few of the, the KTM guys saying that you know they needed a bit of help from the factory. They maybe needed some new parts to help them with the situation that you find yourselves in at the moment. And I'm just wondering, you know, you're obviously talking about you're with this new aero package this year and how that's influenced things. You know, how, how do you see uh, the, the kind of the way out of out of um, the, the, the sort of the position you're in at the moment 
Yeah, I mean, one is understanding, you know, one is trying to to understand where we are and how to get the most out of it. We, you know, it's a strange thing, some tracks where we really suffered, where we would say, for sure, Doha was was definitely a, a bad place for us in the past. We turned that around completely. But then tracks that have been a bit more friendly to us have been a bit more difficult to sort out. So it, it's a learning curve, you know, and it's um, the, the downforce makes the bike a lot less uh, agile. So agility is a, is a massive point. So, you know, what we see where others have maybe understood the aero package versus a motorcycle when you put on lean angle, things like this, they, they have managed to keep the agility or managed to stress the front tire a little bit different on the angle. And, and you know, this entry phase area, this being able to carry speed into these corners and stuff is, is something that we're, we get hit with uh, a lot that we have to try and improve throughout the weekend, you know. We, we're finding our way, don't get me wrong, but it, it takes time and it takes understanding. So, you know, 45-minute sessions, uh, yeah, a, a few free runs every session, and then it's, then it's new tyres, so it's difficult to to really understand and then to learn, you know, you don't ever want to make big, big changes straight away. You want to have a reference and then you want to have an idea. So that's already two runs. And then the third runs you tire. So it's, it's not a fast process, you know, and it's not a, it's not a, an easy situation. And then you've got the test team who go riding on a track, which is green. So the lap time's not quite there. So they suffer different problems because the track's just not ready, you know, and uh, there's not enough Michelin rubber down. There's, you know, Michelin is a very chemical tire that needs a lot of its own rubber on the ground to really start working. So what we face every Grand Prix is maybe what what our testing faces a whole day, you know, when there's just a green track and not enough rubber down too. So to get the true potential from a test is also not so easy anymore. You know, if everyone goes together and you have a day, like that's, I think, what makes the Monday test so, so important now is that the rubber's down there. So... But again, when you have a lot of grip, it hides a lot of your problems. So the guys, many times from a Sunday, go out on the first run on a Monday morning from a tent and go, holy shit, all my problems are fixed. You know, and uh, this is, yeah, it's super hard for us engineering-wise to to really understand what we do and to try to find the way forward. So it's it's a vicious circle. But um, I agree with the riders. We're not, we haven't done enough for them and we have to do better. This is 100% sure. And um, it's something we're working on as, as a group and uh we hope to find our way forward and bring them and bring them the updates that they need. Well, Paul, I know you and Miguel only two and a half seconds from victory at Mugello last year. So I'm hoping you can find those, uh, you know, less than three seconds this time and, and bring another podium result to the team. Best of luck. And uh, thanks ever so much for joining us. No worries, guys. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Cheers, Paul. Thank you. Thanks then to Paul Trevathan for speaking to us and uh, spending some time. He was on the way to Mugello. He's actually going to through Schiphol Airport, Dave, and I believe I probably said that wrong. Um, but it's kind of hard to get out of the Netherlands at the moment. Well, like many places, many airports, there's just a staff shortage causing chaos. It, we, yeah, I mean, there is. It's a holiday week. Um, uh, I think it's uh, Ascension Day. I forget. I forget exactly which uh, which religious holiday is being observed. But um, it means it's a long weekend. A lot of people are on holiday. The schools are closed, uh, and the security they they can't hire enough security staff. Uh, they can't hire enough uh, uh, luggage. Uh, you know, baggage handlers, um, and they are not prepared to offer them more money. And if I'm sure this is a simple matter of paying people better, and perhaps more people want to stand outside loading suitcases into uh, uh, into aircraft it's... for uh, uh, 
in the rain. It's still a volatile process trying to travel around as well, isn't it? If we as we try to eke our yeah. way out of the pandemic. But Neil, coming back to what Paul was saying, there were I mean, talk about a wealth of knowledge from the man. Um, you know, it was quite interesting. A couple of points. I mean, he mentioned the word handicap more than once. Um, in terms of the riders and the limitations they have. For me, one of the most interesting things he said was about the the Michelin tyres and the fact that, you know, race teams are already stretched to the limit when it comes to testing. I mean, he said he used phrase like it was a massive task um, and they didn't really know how they could help. Uh, you know, it, it seems a, a little bit of a catch-22. You know, how can Michelin throw in a brand new tyre if the teams are not either prepared to use it or they don't have time to use it and analyse it? Yeah, it was a, a kind of a pessimistic, I guess, view of uh, of, of the sort of situation that the Michelin are in because it is going to be a, a massive job for them to to kind of fix this this uh, front tire issue because of the reasons that Paul just spelled out. I mean, there's no sort of easy solution um, that, that, or quick overnight solution that can be done. It's going to take um, you know a full season of testing, um, and uh, and even then they're not going to be fully prepared to have a, a new kind of front tire that will be. Uh, be, will be able to be introduced um, from the start of a, of a season, um, but it is clear that you know from from what he was saying that um, you know something needs to be done. I think from Michelin's point of view, just because um, because the pressures that we're seeing now on the front tires, the temperatures they're they're reaching, um, like he was saying, you know, in the past, it would, you would just say to his rider, if the front tire pressure is too high, you know, get out of the slipstream. But now because of the aerodynamics in place, coming out of the slipstream. Um, is uh, is really detrimental to the bike's top speed and uh, also um you know the kind of the weight caused by the bike aheads um is also quite quite dangerous as we've seen a few times this year and can really disrupt uh, the bike behind's feeling so um yeah there's a whole load of factors kind of contributing together um that uh, make this uh, very complicated and uh, quite a difficult thing to address i think if you're if you're Dorna yeah, if we're talking about aerodynamics especially, then we might see some curious effects for, uh, to that in Mugello and how the riders are going to be handling that, particularly within a pack and, and trying to find track positions. Dave, um, a lot of what Paul had to said almost ratified or confirmed a lot of the points you had in your article on motormatters.com this week. Uh, but it was also curious that, you know, there isn't a fix that you propose. Michelin have to bring that front tyre in. Um, but then as an engineer, somebody like Paul Trevathan doesn't want to scrap a lot of the the aids that the riders have when it comes to ride heights or whole shot devices and that, that's just natural isn't it uh, yeah i mean everyone wants to keep uh, everyone is so invested in uh they put so much effort into getting where they are getting to a particular point um that they sort of end up with this with this problem of not wanting to throw it again because it means starting over again um they have all of this data they understand how to do it they have, they understand how the aerodynamics affects the uh, affects the bike um and in fact as paul was saying you know they did a big aerodynamics uh, uh, update this year and it's made a huge difference and it doesn't even look if you look at it it doesn't look all that different um it's only when you look sort of up close that you see that, that, that there's it's generating a lot more downforce and that seems to be causing them a lot more problems than they than they expected it's just the biggest problem or what i found one of the most interesting things he says is you know that look the, the 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 field is so stacked everything is so close together um when you look at exactly how close everything is uh, you can't afford to let any you can't afford to get any of the details wrong um it, 
you even small changes if you get it a little bit wrong you know if you lose uh, a half of a tenth uh, a lap somewhere previously you might have still been okay you might have ended up on the podium or something but you know losing half a tenth um, uh, somewhere can mean you're absolutely nowhere can mean the the field is so close that you end up sort of third 12 13th 14th and that makes it very very difficult difficult and it also means that everyone is working even harder and even harder and analyzing the details even further you know we're working towards we're getting to the point where these bikes are as close to being fully developed um as possible and that makes finding sort of you know uh, changes and, and and advantage difficult it's uh like you say dave i mean you are become you're even like the 500s you know back in sort of like the mid to late 90s you're maybe coming to a development cycle where guys are scratching their heads wondering well how do we get around the rules further it's it's a difficult situation um but neil i mean listening to paul's words there do we think the role of the crew chief is going to become even more pertinent because not only these guys are incredible people because not only they have to be technically efficient um knowledgeable and creative but they also have to almost psychologically guide their rider to the maximum you know the last couple of tenths of a second of their capabilities uh, and then you know just to hear paul talking about say fabio quattararo and his breaking prowess on the yamaha i mean they're also studying the opposition as much as they're trying to find the weak points and accentuate the strong points of their own package so um incredibly bright people with a very difficult job yeah, it's one of the, the kind of the great joys, I think, of, of our job is that uh, sometimes we get to interview these people. We get to sit down and, and pick their brains because, you know, just the, the kind of level of information that they're able to reel off is, is quite staggering. Um, and, uh, and really, I mean, listening to Paul just there, it goes to show you just how many different factors are at play. But behind, you know, some rider that maybe isn't performing, you look at someone like Miguel Oliveira this year, who's had a, a bit of a torrid run recently, and Paul gives fantastic perspective on exactly what is, is going on there. And, you know, having to, to manage a rider in such um, intense fluctuations is also a really critical part of, of their job. It's not just um, knowing the bike technically inside out. It's uh, it's being able to manage emotions and motivate, be hard on someone when they need to, they need a bit of a kick up the backside. Um, so yeah, absolutely. You know, full respect to full respect to them, and it, it, it is an integral part of the the kind of the working machine. You need to have someone in that corner that you fully trust and that fully trusts you. Yes, thanks again to Paul for coming on the show. Uh, he actually, like we mentioned, mentioned uh, Fabio Quartararo, who won at Mugello in two thousand and twenty-one, uh, and we'll be talking a little bit more about the circuit because, like a fine calzone, we're going to fold this podcast into an ad break. But we'll be back with some fresh topping right after this. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the second half of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Adam Wheeler. I'm back with David Emmett and Neil Morrison. We're all about to travel to Mugello and very happy to do so. Um, Aperol Spritz are by the first round. Uh, Valentino Rossi is going to be popping up again in the paddock, I think for the third, second or third time this year. Um, the number 46 is going to be retired on Saturday. Uh, gentlemen, how do we feel about that? Should numbers be retired? Uh, is it mainly a publicity stunt to get those last Rossi fans back into Mugello, even though he's not going to be riding? Uh, how do we feel about this particular piece of news that's taking place? 
at the Grand Premio Oakley d'Italia. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I, I could not care less. Like, it, it's not something that really <laughs> keeps me up at night. Um, and if I have to really stretch within myself and then pull a, an opinion out of my the deep depths of my soul, I would say that uh, on this occasion, it's probably justified. There only is one 46 in motorcycle racing. I mean, you know... Um, Tommy Bridewell. <laughs> Sorry, you're right, Dave. There's actually two. How could I forget uh, Tommy uh, doing the business in BSB uh, once again? Yeah, I think I think you know numbers being retired maybe isn't always the the right thing to do. Rossi, I think you can see why uh, you would retire Rossi's number. I can see why they retired Kevin Swanson's number. Those numbers were so iconic in in the 500 MotoGP class that you can't really foresee anyone else coming in and uh, and replacing them. Um, but if someone with a very strong opinion on why riders or why numbers shouldn't be retired wanted to to come in and and, and battle me in an argument, I, I would you know basically say go on ahead. This is not something that uh, I feel particularly strongly about. Well, for not for not giving a toss, Neil. Thanks for your positive contributions to the Paddock Pass podcast. Anyway, it's always a joy to have you on and have your your opinion, Dave. How many numbers have we seen retired now? I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Did Casey Stoner lose? We've lost twenty seven. We lost Caparossi's no, number. No, we haven't no. lost twenty seven. Uh, we've lost. Uh, yeah, we've lost 58, 69, 65, 34, 34 46, uh, 46 now. I can't remember whether they, uh, I think they might have retired Cato, uh, Cato's number 72. 74. Uh, 74, yep, yeah, sorry. Um, and Tommy Zawa in Moto2? Mm. Yep. I'm not sure. But I mean, uh, it, it's, I, uh, to a large extent i agree with uh neil mostly in the fact that if there is a number which deserves to be retired um it's 46 however um retiring not numbers is nonsense and we shouldn't do it it's a complete waste of time and why the 65 is retired is an absolute mystery loris <laughs> uh, loris was a very fine racer um but that's about it really well um, i think he was the first wasn't he dave I think that was the first. Oh, apart from Schwantz. No, the thirty-four. The thirty-four was. I think Schwantz was the uh, was the first number to be retired. Yeah. Um. It's. I mean, like, why isn't Barry? Why isn't Barry Sheen's number seven retired? I mean, you know, Barry Sheen. Um, because it would tarnish the legacy of Carlos Checker. <laughs> that must be what it is. That's. It's the. It's the only possible. Re- I mean, at least it's nice to uh, see that they've uh, retired McDoohan's number, and Giacomo Agostini's, yeah. and Wayne Rennie's. Yeah, let's, let's, we, well, we can move along the list, couldn't we? But I mean, I think I like about this this ceremony is that um, I think Valentino Rossi was kind of very nonplussed about having his number retired. Uh, you know, I think also people, somebody asked him last season, if not the season before, how would he feel about having a corner named after him? And he was like, well, you know, I, I don't don't really care. I think corners should keep their original names because that adds to the uh just the the appeal of the the old circuits and you know it's there's no there's no need to do it which you, you have to applaud him for really yeah i mean who can uh, who can forget the uh iconic name of turn 1 at qatar um uh, no i mean it, it does seem like a nonsense and the more scurrilous of uh, of 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 well, the, the more scurrilous observers uh, note that it might be to do with poor ticket sales for Magello. Um because Magello was always 
the Valentino Rossi uh, race, much more so than Misano even, uh, it, despite the fact that Misano is there. This was this was always Rossi's race. It was always you know a Rossi weekend. I remember being there in two thousand and ten when he fell off and broke his leg uh, on Saturday morning in FP two. Um, because we had the weird, uh, the, the, the weird sort of Friday afternoon only, uh, uh, sessions at that time. But anyway, um, he fell off, broke his leg and people were just getting up and walking out. I mean, they were literally even before, or I wouldn't say before he put his, he was in the ambulance, but as soon as he was in the ambulance, people were packing up, uh, uh moving <laughs> out and leaving. So. It's very much a Valentino Rossi Grand Prix. And I think if there is one race which takes a big hit, I mean, it was fantastic to see uh, Le Mans full. And also what I hear about Aston, it really looks like that track is going to be very full as well. I don't know about Barcelona. I think Saxon Ring will be very full. So it does seem like uh, a lot of these races are going to uh, starting to have a lot more fans. Um, but I think Mugello is going to take a big, big hit with the retirement of Valentino Rossi, which is a shame because it's such a fantastic uh, circuit. I don't quite understand it personally because the Italian fans have a pretty good shout of victory in, in every category, it has to be said. And if you're a Jacassi fan, you're going to have nine of them on the grid this weekend with Michele Piro also joining the fray. Uh, I think they're even having a special photo opportunity on the Thursday. So there's, it's not as if, uh, you know, Valentino Rossi's dropped away, which he, like we mentioned before, he has done for a couple of years anyway in terms of results. There's still plenty of um, possibilities to, to celebrate. And of course, you know, who could forget Petrucci's, um, you know, emotional victory as well. Can I just interject with a pop quiz because I was uh, doing some numbers before we before we started, just going through the results between 2012 and 2021. Um, who has the most wins? Jorge Lorenzo. Uh, sorry, in terms of factories, I only ah. did the manufacturers. Yeah, is this like a hit the buzzer first thing, Neil? Or are you just going to jump uh, in with oh, it? You know, like uh, okay. <laughs> Yamaha Div. Uh, Yamaha do they have five wins uh, compared to Ducati? Even though you know it, it's felt like Ducati have dominated the place because because they had that streak of wins from 2017 to 2019. Um, and who has the most podiums outside of wins? Or in terms of manufacturers? Uh, in terms of manufacturers, yeah. Uh, the most podiums would be Ducati. Probably Honda. Uh, wrong. No, also no. Honda have got an absolutely shocking record there. They've been, they have four podiums um, and one win with Mark Marquez. Um, uh, Ducati have five podiums, and Yamaha have been on the podium on the podium a total of seven times. They, I mean, this surprisingly really is a Yamaha track, even though uh, you know it, it, it doesn't really feel like it. Sometimes it's felt like a Ducati uh, track in recent years. Long live uh, corner speed. But also, if you remember that, yeah. remember that famous race in 2019. I mean, Lorenzo outdragged Marquez to to the to the line. I mean, that was a a case 15. of uh, 15. Sorry, yeah. If uh, you know, if you always think, well, the Yamaha is going to be at a disadvantage in terms of top speed, then it still can be done. I mean, that entry into the final corner by Lorenzo was was fantastic to get close enough to Marquez. But that was uh, that was 16. That was the first year we were using the spec electronics. And at that point, I think Honda were struggling above everyone else uh, with regards to getting the best out of the, the sort of Magnetti Morelli electronics package. So that was one of the rare occasions where Yamaha has had a, a distinct top speed advantage over Honda. 
Yeah, but Neil, I was just being romantic and you've just like de de <laughs> deconstructed it for me. But yes, of course, you're right. <laughs> but this is what makes the track so interesting is there's lots of places. Uh, I mean, it is one of the fastest straights on, on the calendar. And I, and I do think the Yamaha is really going to struggle there precisely because they are down on power. Um, but it's the, the secret to the track is not, uh, you know, just outright horsepower the way it is at Qatar. It's much more about how much speed you can carry through that final corner. Um, you can, again, one of the, going back to what Paul Trevathan was saying was they, they've stopped looking at top speeds and they are now looking at how many seconds does it take to, uh, to, to go down the straight. You know, they're timing the length of the straight. So acceleration has become much more important. Less so than uh, uh, less so than top speed. You want to get you want to uh, traverse the length of the straight for as long as possible. And this is one of the places where you can actually carry a lot of speed onto the uh, uh, onto the front straight and uh, and get away with having a slower motorbike. This is uh, we saw a Yamaha win last year, of course, by a couple of seconds, as we mentioned to Paul uh, from a KTM. Uh, Neil, it's going to be interesting to see how a GP twenty two is handling around Mugello this time, especially compared to like the competitiveness that Enea Bastianini's been shown on the GP21. Yeah, it is going to be interesting. Um, you know, a Yamaha won last year, but maybe a Yamaha wouldn't have won last year if we didn't have that crazy situation. Obviously, you know, we had the tragic passing of Jason Depasquet, um, which was, I guess, yeah, it was confirmed his death, wasn't it? Just before the uh, the MotoGP race started, we had the minute silence on the grid, and and you know some riders were, I think all of them were pretty deeply affected by that uh, whole incident and, and everything that had gone on that weekend. But some more than others, and Pekka Banya obviously crashed out of the race, I think, on the second lap up at Arabiata, and um, you know he had the speed to 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 be with Quartararo, I think, on that occasion. So. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's going to be interesting. Yes, Quartararo was the winner by I think uh, two and a half seconds last year. He obliterated the race records last year. I think he was fifteen seconds faster than the previous race record. So he was really, really, really fast um, last year. But considering that bike is more or less the same as it was a year ago, and you know Ducati with both the twenty one and the twenty two um, have made decent strides you would say that uh yeah Ducati have to be in a, a fantastic position to to clean up this weekend i would say in other news of course in Mugello, max biaggi being made a motor gp legend um talk about a force of nature in the 250s was there a finer rider uh, in that category than max biaggi uh you know an overdue legend award i think he's going to be the 34th riders be inducted into this ceremony um has there ever also been a rider that's quite divided opinion like max i mean you either were in enthralled to him you were devoted to him or uh it was uh you know you couldn't stand the guy um wh where do you two sit on that one because i always thought he was something of a genius um but then quite flaky i don't want to say flaky but flaky in terms of performance perhaps where you always expected something much better from him but it just didn't tend to turn up usually I mean, for me, uh, yeah, I mean, he was definitely the, possibly the greatest 250 rider ever. Um, he was fantastic on a 500 as well. Uh, he would, obviously, he was also fantastic in superbikes. Um, so, yeah, it, it, he was exceptional. He, he Unfortunately, he ran into Valentino Rossi. I mean, I was, uh, because of when I started 
really focusing on MotoGP again or uh, 500s. I was sort of, you know, team team Rossi because the, the the way that Rossi managed to stalk BRG and, and force him into an error was um, absolutely fantastic to watch. Um, but Biaggi was just exceptional. Uh, you know, as, as a rider, he was absolutely, uh, ab- absolutely ex- exceptional. So yeah, of course he belongs in, uh, belongs in the Hall of Fame slash Legends House or whatever um, uh, they're, they're going to call it. House of Legends. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's the new Netflix show debuting this weekend, <laughs> right, Dave? Um, the uh, yeah, I think your opinion on Biaggi very much. Um, it uh, depends on whether you had to work with him intimately or not. Uh, those that maybe had to work <laughs> intimately with him, especially during his days in the 250 category, uh, don't have very many positive things to say about him. He did have a bit of a, a superstar diva quality to him. I think there's there's no uh, secret there. Um, the dealings that I've had with him since he came back into the paddock, first with Mahindra, then with Aprilia, and now with Max Racing, he's always been signed enough um, and quite you know professional. Um, and I loved I loved watching him um, on the 250 machine. I thought you know his uh, those Chesterfield bikes in the mid 90s were probably among the the most beautiful machines ever made. Um, he was just outstanding on those machines as well. Um, always was a little bit frustrated that he couldn't quite uh, deliver when it came to the the, the MotoGP class. But then, as Dave said, he just uh, had the misfortune of running into Valentino Rossi in his absolute peak. Um, but, you know, some of his feats in the 250 class, I think, you know, his championship win in 1997 ranks among some of the best championship triumphs ever. You know, he had a big falling out with Aprilia at the end of 96. He basically was looking for a bit more money. Um, the real clash of egos at the top of Aprilia. Aprilia's, uh, I think it was his pre- the president at that time, Ivano Beggio, said, you know, it's the Aprilia that's been winning. It's not been the rider. So if you want to leave, then that's fine because Aprilia will still be winning. And then Biaggi went and won the Italian Grand Prix at Mugello um, the following year on a Honda. And I think the, the margins were absolutely minuscule between himself, Caparossi, and um, Lucchi, was it? I think the, the pretty test rider, Marcelino yeah. Lucchi. Um, you know, so that, I mean, talk about sticking the middle finger up at the <laughs> the fact the factory that had just ditched you, um, that basically just said, like, you know, you can run on if you want. That's a pretty iconic performance, I think. And, um, yeah, when you look at Biaggi's career as a whole, there were multiple of those. There was many, many, many occasions where he was uh, absolutely spectacular to watch. You know, his 500 debut was really the stuff of legend as well. So, yeah, absolutely a deserved uh, entry into this Hall of Fame. Was the Aprilia RS250 the greatest Grand Prix motorcycle uh, ever built? One of the best looking. Uh, yeah, but I mean, look, I've always had a, to- a, a soft spot for the 250s because they were so pure, you know, 100 kilos and 100 horsepower. It, it's, it's such a perfect balance of... Um, yeah, they needed a little bit of... Uh, they needed corner speed, but you could, you could... You did also have enough horsepower to actually sort of you had horsepower to spare sort of thing. So, like, I, I loved them. And I think if there's, if I had to choose one Grand Prix bike, I mean, you know, you could say the RC211V, the, the Honda V5 MotoGP bike. Uh, but if I had to choose between an NSR500 and, and an Aprilia RS250, I would go with the, I'd go with the Aprilia over the Honda every time. Yeah, pure race bike. I mean, if Jamie McWilliams can take almost a, a kind of proddy version to a Grand Prix podium, that says a lot about the competitiveness of it. And of course, how Jeremy was also riding at that particular time. 
talk about a competitive uh, category. But Neil, I have a question. When are you going to be inducted into the MotoGP legends? Because, you know, that um, description of Max Biaggi's career was uh, quite masterful. So um, hats off to you, my friend. Netflix show starts this Friday, Ad. <laughs> well, listen, guys, in other news, um, we, are we expecting some contract news? You know, roundabout, it's Mugello, Catalonia. They usually are back-to-back. It's a time when um, city season is probably at its height in terms of speculation. Uh, would it be reasonable to expect some sort of declaration from maybe even from uh, Borgo Panagali? Uh, for me, I mean, Ducati do quite often uh, announce contracts around uh, around Mugello time, as as um, Tammy Garali was saying on Twitter. It is it is not uncommon. Um, there could well be some news. Uh, and maybe Aprilia too. You would also expect to see something from Aprilia, but then we know that the negotiations with Alicia Spargo have been quite um, sort of difficult in terms of uh, in terms of money. There seemed to be a little bit more optimism in France, but uh, we shall see. Um, but I think the withdrawal of the shot withdrawal of Suzuki basically means that everyone is uh, everyone is talking to everyone. Um, there are lots and lots of options, and we still don't know if there's going to be 22 or 24 bikes on the grid next year. We don't know if there's going to be uh, four Yamahas or two Yamahas, uh, whether there's going to be uh, two or four Aprilias. There, there's so many open questions that it's going to be really difficult to... Yeah, it, it's hard to say. It, it feels more like we'll, it, it'll be after the summer break, but um, you, this is definitely this is definitely a very very important time. If there's no announcements made, I think there's going to be lots and lots of negotiations. Surely, um, you know, Fabio Quartararo's contract situation with Yamaha is the first thing that has to fall into place. And you'd imagine even the disintegration of Suzuki and MotoGP is not really going to affect that one. Uh, Neil, I mean, you couldn't see Yamaha doing a sudden. Boltefacci and signing somebody like Juan Mir, can you? No, I, I, I really couldn't add, to be honest. Consider what Quattararo is doing at the moment. I mean, that would be the ultimate uh, act of self-sabotage uh, that you could imagine, basically, because if it wasn't for Fabio at the moment, you know, uh, Yamaha would be so, so, so far up uh, Shit Creek without a paddle that, um, well, they, they probably wouldn't even want to imagine it. Um yeah, I think that uh, no, I think that you know Fabio remains their their aim. I spoke to Dylan Jarvis uh, and uh, Le Mans, and he was saying that he's pretty happy with where negotiations are at the present. He feels that they've done a decent enough job to convince Fabio that basically he said what Fabio is most interested in is what will give him the best chance of success in twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four, and Jarvis has put together a pretty convincing in his words, a uh, pretty convincing um, presentation of, of changes that Yamaha are going to make within their structure and uh, with their machine um, for next year and the following year. So, um, yeah, I would say it's... I mean, the other thing is, like, where does Fabio go now? You know, Suzuki's obviously out of the equation. Uh, he's not going to go to Ducati. Um, Honda... I don't he's not th- going to go to Honda. He's not going to go to Honda because they look like they've maybe settled on one of the Suzuki riders. Um, and, you know, are you going to go to KTM or Prilia's? I, I just don't see where else he can go, to be honest. So, um, yeah, you would have to say that that is going to happen sooner rather than later. 
Uh, Neil, you mentioned self-sabotage. I'm going to come back to you in a minute for your uh, fantasy team pick um, and you know, maybe some of the predictions for, for the weekend. But first of all, uh, guys, we know that Dorna went to Kimi Ring last week uh, just to check out the circuit for the Grand Prix of Finland, the troubled Grand Prix of Finland. We haven't really had any news so far. We're recording this on a Tuesday uh, just before Mugello. Maybe there'll be some news over the weekend um, you know, in Italy or maybe building up to Catalonia because that Grand Prix is coming around fast. From what we can understand, they've started to sell tickets nationally in Finland. Uh, there seems to be some support going again for the Grand Prix, but by the looks of things, it's just a, a race against time on the site that's going to be too tricky. Um, in terms of the calendar, you know, if Finland does disappear, then it gives uh, some semblance of a summer break for what is already a long championship. Um, if it gets swapped out for maybe another race or Kimi Ring gets moved later into the schedule, um, who knows? But uh, I think at the moment, no news is potentially bad news on this one. And I think after Mandalika, uh, the last thing perhaps Dorna want is another Grand Prix where there's scrutiny on the facilities and the setup and the infrastructure rather than on what's happening on the circuit. So um, let's see if we do get any kind of news update soon coming into the next two Grand Prix on the calendar. Uh, yeah, I mean, you 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 do feel that if uh, because the, there was a, a delegation from the FIM who went there last week, uh, you do think that if it had been if the news had been positive, if they were very sort of positive about it, uh, then there would have been a, a press release at the uh, at the end of last week confirming that everything was fine. And the fact there hasn't been uh, a press release saying that everything is fine makes you suspect that everything is not completely fine. Well, I mean, it's always a question of money and contracts and situations like this. So I just hope, you know, if Kimi Ring do have the extra backing to get the circuit finished, then, you know, 2023, they're going to be looking at, um, you know, a pretty certain Grand Prix if it doesn't work this year. Yeah. And also, this was the race where um, the, or the Kimi Ring, they were hoping to attract a lot of Russians to uh, to come and visit because it's quite close to St. Petersburg. It, it was a way of having a, a well-organized race close to Russia where you could get lots of Russian um, uh, Russian fans in. Uh, obviously, uh, Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine um, put an end to any thought of that happening. So I think they've been quite badly affected by that as well. You know, their, their business model was was uh, an issue yeah and also you know i think it was 2016 we first were led to believe that uh the kimmy ring was going to host the model gp round in 2018 um so it's been postponed from 18 from 19 um covid obviously hit 20 pretty hard it was on the provisional calendar last year it didn't happen so i mean this is going to be the what the fifth time uh, that uh, you know it it has been provisionally touted to be there and, and hasn't quite pulled off, and it does make you wonder whether it's ever going to happen, just because of um, one of the, two of the factors that Davis mentioned. Um, so, yeah, um, I mean, you know, by the time you listen to this pod, dear listener, there could well be a chance that the news is already out. But it does, you know, if you had to put money on it from where we're sat on a Tuesday uh, before Mugello, it, it certainly does seem that it might not happen. Fingers crossed, it won't be a circuit of Wales situation. So. Um... Last thing, guys, is we're going to wrap the podcast up. Uh, like I said, we've all got packing to do to get ready to get to the Grand Prix. Uh, Neil, as I mentioned, your fantasy team, is there anybody that's badly, badly letting the side down that needs to be swapped out before we get to this latest round of the series? <laughs> oh, you know, I'm going to be honest. I know you you swear by it, Ad, and, and you're obviously full of beans when we're talking about this. I actually didn't once look at my fantasy team uh, during the previous GP in France, uh, which is a sign that I've just given up. Oh, 
I've got it up now. I had Joanne Mir and Alex Rins as the two lead riders. What a wonderful French Grand Prix they had. Um, <laughs> Marc Marquez and Miguel Oliveira. Well, Miguel Oliveira was an inspired choice as well, wasn't he? Uh, Ducati is my manufacturer, so I think I'll stick with that for Magello. But um, yeah, I might need to do some rejigging before this weekend. Yeah, no, it's the fantasy composition for 2022, not 2023, if you're putting the Suzuki boys in there. <laughs> Dave, is there anyone else that you think, I've got to get rid of that person? I've got to get rid of that rider? Well, I uh, I do have Franco Morbidelli, who has not been particularly productive for me. Um, uh, but the trouble is, I can't swap him out because I couldn't get anyone decent back for him. So uh, I'm sort of stuck with him. What I did do was upgrade my manufacturer from Honda to Aprilia, because I think Aprilia is going to be interesting this weekend. Uh, you know, uh, Aleish has been decent around uh, Mugello and... He's, you know, he's had a very good run, so I think it's good. But I mean, apart from that, I've got two Ducatis. I've got Anea Bastianini and uh, and Jack Miller in uh, as riders. I've got Juan Mir as rider. Uh, so I'm feeling pretty confident, which means that um, Anea Bastianini will crash on the first lap. Jack Miller <laughs> will have a technical problem, and uh, Juan Mir will, I don't know, get, get diarrhea halfway through the race or something. So. Yeah, Joanne has been letting me down recently as well. He's been sort of a staple part of my team since the beginning of the season and just hasn't really been delivering the goods. So I'm I'm actually weighing up whether I should take the plunge and put a Lesh or an Bastianini into my team. But like you say, it could be the um, uh, Murphy's Law that it just doesn't work out at all. Neil? Getting diarrhea isn't always a bad thing in Mugello. Davizioso had uh, bad diarrhea the night before the race in 17 and uh, ended up going on to win. So sometimes that's... Uh, that's one of those strange things that can spur you on to create things. Yeah, and after Liverpool won the Champions League, you had verbal diarrhoea the next morning while under the influence. So, you know, it can produce these performances that are quite unforgettable. So there we go. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, don't forget to send us any comments or feedback on Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter or through our Patreon channels. We'll be back sending some broadcasts and thoughts from the Alto Drummer de Mugello. Probably said that wrong this weekend and then of course straight afterwards we'll be reviewing the italian grand prix before we head to catalonia this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com Pizza segues. That's a right. professional, man. Smooth. <laughs>